Hello, Gut Check fans and KBMD Health. It's your host, Eric Rieger, and of course, we'll be joined shortly here with your other host, Dr. Ken Brown, as he has Dr. Stu Ackerman back here for episode 4.5, and this is all going to be about antibody testing. This is fantastic. It's a great episode. I think that all of us could learn quite a bit about the direction that we're going as we prepare to head back out into the world and uh, make certain that we don't get each other sick. Of course, today's episode is brought to you by Unrefined Bakery, unrefinedbakery.com. Be sure to go to unrefinedbakery.com, use code GUTCHECK, save 20% on your very first order. This is the best way to practice social distancing and get incredible food. If you happen to be gluten-free, uh, you need to worry about your paleo meals, etc., keto, They've got it all. They have incredible trail mix. They've got great cupcakes. I mean, if you're worried about eating healthy, they've got incredible food. It also includes cupcakes. So anyhow, head to unrefinedbakery.com. If you want to treat yourself to some fantastic food, use code GUTCHECK for 20% off of your very first order. And of course, brought to you by Autron Teal. Autron Teal, you can get your own polyphenols with Autron Teal, your daily dose at lovemytummy.com forward slash KBMD. That's lovemytummy.com, KBMD. And of course, Gut Check Project is always brought to you by KBMD Health. KBMDHealth.com. Head there, use code GCP to save 20% off of your order of any of Dr. Brown's very own clinically tested CBD, as well as his signature package of CBD and Autron Teal. And just this last week, we unveiled the new professional line of Broccolite. This is sulforaphanes that will help you with anti-aging. They help you fend off disease. Check out Broccolite at kbmdhealth.com. Use code GCP to save 20%. GCP stands for Gut Check Project. All right, without delaying any further, this is episode 4.5 of The COVID File. You will have Dr. Stuart Ackerman joining your very own Dr. Ken Brown, as the two of them discuss a gastroenterologist's perspective and moving forward with antibody testing. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, here we are on our COVID files 4.5. That means at 0.5, we have our recurring super smart guest, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Stuart Ackerman. Dr. Ackerman, would you please introduce yourself? Sure, Ken. Thanks for having me again. It's, uh, my name is uh, Stuart Ackerman. I'm a gastroenterologist with Digestive Health Associates of Texas. And uh, we're, uh, I'm glad that I'm here again to uh, discuss more COVID type stuff. So on uh, Dr. Ackerman and I did a COVID 3.5 episode, three and a half episode, where we looked into the role of COVID in the digestive tract. Today, we're going to look at some journals and discuss the role of COVID-19 testing, specifically the role of antibodies. And you're going to be hearing a lot about this. And so a lot of the shows that we're doing, we're a little ahead of the media. So that's what I'm really happy about is that every time we do a show, and then later the media kind of catches up. So... Um, the, the one thing I do want to address, and if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, Dr. Ackerman, um, you've changed your look a little bit. I mean, you had this uh, very beautiful, luscious beard, you know, Wolverine-like, and uh, it's a little different. <laughs> Is that because you're getting all the notoriety from this show, or what's going on? 
Yeah, some sacrifices have to be made. So uh, as part of my practice, you know, although there's uh, some restrictions because of COVID on doing procedures and seeing patients in person, uh, I, stu- I still have a significant number of emergency and, and urgent procedures that need to be done. And uh, part of the protocol, as recommended by all of our societies, is that you've got to wear PPE, this protective uh, equipment, and, and some of that is an N95 mask. And an N95 mask, when it goes over your, your mouth and your nose, it doesn't fit too securely if you've got uh, luscious locks like I did. <laughs> So, <laughs> so sacrifices I, needed to be made. <laughs> so Dr. Ackerman did this really cool video where he basically explained the whole process of this and how certain sacrifices have to be made. So I suggest everybody go to his website. What is your website? It's uh, www.stewartackermanmd, S-T-U-A-R-T-A-K-E-R-M-A-N-M-D.com. You posted the video on your website, I hope? Uh, yeah, it's posted on my blog on the yeah, website. It's awesome. I love the video. It's so cool. Um, all right. So when you and I were discussing about doing this and what I like is that you and I talk all the time, uh, and we discuss journals and we do stuff and we kind of debate a little bit and we poke each other and you were, you were discussing that, you know, Hey, we should just do a show on this. Do you want to do like a point counterpoint kind of thing where we should debate? And I laughed because I immediately thought of Airplane, the movie from 1980. You're way too young for this, but Airplane. I've, I've, did, I've Googled it. <laughs> they were doing point counterpoint. And, you know, the whole point of the show is to be so obscenely on either end where the one guy, so um, a CRNA, Jack Carey, that uh, I'm not sure if you know him. Do, do, have you met Jack? Yeah. So yeah. Jack would always laugh. He would use that quote whenever something would happen in the in our endoscopy center, if maybe the scopes weren't ready or a patient showed up late or something got off track, he would always say the same thing, which I started thinking about, about this. In the point counterpoint in airplane, the counterpoint guy was like, they bought the ticket. They knew what they were getting into. I say, <laughs> let them crash. This is um, not going to be quite like that because I think you and I will end up in the same spot ultimately when we're discussing this. So that's kind of where I thought where you and I were hoping to have a kind of a point counterpoint, but I think we're going to end up in the same spot. Do you kind of agree? Yeah, I agree. I think that um, it's, it's good to sort of flesh out both sides of the argument so that uh, you're more well-rounded in your discussion. And I think that's kind of how we approach it. You know, they, we, we're, we're looking at the same data. We're drawing our own conclusions uh, and sort of coming out on both sides of the argument. I think that's, that, that's good for any kind of evidence-based discussion. Totally. And what we're going to talk about today is something that is super important because it is how do we get the economy back on track? How do we use testing to do it? And we're going to take a look at the evidence-based approach to this. And in fact, this is coming so fast that this morning I woke up and I saw a couple different articles that, that came out this morning. Uh, one of them was an article on a homeless shelter in Boston. And what they decided to do is do PCR testing on everyone in the homeless shelter. And what they found was that 36% of the people were positive at that moment. And we're going to discuss what that moment means. So 36% were positive, but only 7.5% admitted to having a cough and only 0.7 even had a fever. The conclusion was in this article was, holy cow, we need to do mass testing so that we can see who's really been infected. And then, almost on cue, a New York Times article came out today where it was a journalist that he opens 
with a with a classic Mark Moran. I'm a comedy fan. Mark Moran line where the the journalist says, uh, "I know a guy." And because I know a guy and the connections I have, I was able to get my hands on a rapid antibody test. And I took the test and I was negative. The problem is I'm not sure it was a valid test. I'm like, this could not have been at a better timing. This guy did this. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. You and I know guys. Yeah, we know people. And, and this is the the national and international discussion now. If you've yeah, at all been watching the news or, or, or reading papers or, or, or going on Reddit, you know that Italy, Spain, the United States to some degree, they're all discussing this idea of how do we figure out who has immunity? Is there a way for us to figure out who can safely come out of their homes, go back to work and sort of jumpstart the economy again and, and jumpstart life? And it sounds dystopian it sounds like it could be a great idea it could be a terrible idea and anything in between uh but what we don't have is we don't we don't necessarily know the details yet and i think that's that's what gets everyone confused because uh there's no shortage of media outlets touting this as you know the next great idea but is it i don't know well we're gonna we're gonna get into that i there was an article written by um i don't remember who wrote this but it was just this just happened the last couple of days about ending the lockdown. And they interviewed a Harvard epidemiologist and he said, well, ending the lockdown is gonna be an effort with trial and error. There is no scientific evidence to this. He's like, the best I can say this is we're all in a life raft. I'm not sure how we get to shore yet. What we're gonna talk about is possibly how to get to shore. Because if you think about it, governments around the world, they need to triangulate the health of the people, the freedom of the population, and there's no scientific consensus. So what I wanted to do today with you, because you're a super smart guy, much smarter than me, let's kick some science, let's go over some articles, and then play the pros and cons of each side of it. So I'll throw it back in your court. Where do you want to start with this? So I think, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have a few articles that we uh, definitely want to discuss as the basis for the arguments about immunity. I think uh, before we jump into it, just to get a better sense for our viewers, we need to explain some of the terminology and, and the differences between the testing methods uh, to understand what is best to use to acutely diagnose someone with COVID-19 versus how do we tell that they're no longer infected, they're no longer sick, and whether or not, or at least to start that discussion of whether or not they have immunity. Absolutely. So let's start with what is the standard test being done when somebody shows up with a fever to an emergency room? So the standard testing when you're trying to figure out, is this person currently infected and or not sick? We know they're sick, they're there, uh, is something called PCR testing. So in PCR testing, we actually will try to replicate the virus, right? The implication being that you got to have virus in order to replicate. So a negative test means there's nothing there to replicate. And therefore, you might have a fever, you might have some chills, you might have a cough, but you don't have COVID-19. Uh, on the flip side to that, if you start replicating virus, the virus has to be there. By definition, if a virus is there, you have viral infection. So PCR testing has been considered the gold standard for diagnosis of COVID-19 at this point. And let's talk about the, what we did talk about on our last show, the kind of pros and cons of that, because what we're learning and what is fascinating is we're here today, 
what is the date? April uh, April sixteenth, April sixteenth, twenty twenty. I mean, we may be eating crow tomorrow because everybody. This is all changing. But what we're learning now is that a lot of people. I was listening. Um, don't remember who the virologist was, but he was describing the actual process. If you've had the swab done, it's not very comfortable. They get in there, they try and get the cells, they try and do this. It, it, there is some sampling error issues with this, and possibly it's not in the back of the throat. We discussed how possibly it could be in the stool. So there are some limitations to that particular PCR testing. And a lot of the studies we're going to refer to look at comparison to PCR. Correct. And so, in some of those studies that in order to mitigate that risk for false negatives, they'll swab multiple areas and multiple sites to try to decrease that risk of missing a potentially positive person just because of sampling error. It's funny you say that because now after our last episode, I'm pretty sure that they listened to our episode and this is why they did this because I can only of, assume I can only assume that that um, there's a Chinese doctor that's saying that we should probably swab the anus in those that have recovered to determine if they have PCR positive. So before somebody's released from the hospital, swab their anus. Yeah. I mean, I think fewer people are going to go to the hospital. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> we probably shouldn't publicize that. <laughs> um, you know, so the PCR testing. Now, explain what the antibody testing is. So when we talk about antibody response, and, and you might have heard a lot about this, you know, the, the buzzwords are IgM and IgG. These are the two uh, immunoglobulins that we talk about with infection. And once you have an infection, in order to mount a response, that's really what we're talking about. And IgM is the immunoglobulin that comes up uh, first. That's kind of the, uh, the acute fighter for you to try to get the infection under control. And then once you're sort of getting to a point where you're uh, starting to go towards recovery, you start creating IgG. And IgG are uh, more like your, your memory, right? That's what, rem that's what reminds your body and how to fight something. So when we talk about vaccinations, where we're actually providing immunity to people, what we really are doing is either providing directly IgG or giving what's called a live attenuated virus, a small kind of stunted virus so that your body will see it react and create its own IgG. If I had to encapsulate this in one sentence so that you remember the difference between IgM and IgG, I would say that IgM is what wins the battle for you, but IgG is what wins the war. I love that. I've never heard it. Did you, did you just, I mean, is this yours? Yeah, that's a shower thought. <laughs> I love that. You're exactly right. So when, uh, a lot of people, if you've ever um, been checked for Epstein-Barr virus, this is a very common thing. Epstein-Barr virus will usually have an IgM and an IgG, and people will realize that most of us are IgG positive. We've been exposed, which means you saw the virus and you carry these antibodies throughout your life. Right. So that, that is a, I love the battle war thing. That is awesome. Never yeah, I just think it it's an way. easy way to remember it. And, you know, yeah. similarly, you know, if you go to have a new patient visit at a primary care doctor and, and they say to you, well, have you been vaccinated for hep B? Have you been vaccinated for varicella, which is chicken pox? And you're like, I don't know. I don't have that little card from when I was yeah. uh, five years old. <laughs> They're going to run some blood tests. And those blood tests are just checking for the varicella IgG and, the, and certain hepatitis B IgGs. Because if you've got them, 
you're you're good. And if you don't, you need either vaccination or boosters, right? Because sometimes you might be immune, but that immunity can wane. We're seeing that with varicella. So we're seeing people uh, actually uh, co-host Eric Rieger developed uh, uh, shingles. Oh, wow. And it happens and it's happening to a lot of 40 year olds, uh, a recurrence of varicella that's happening. And so that we got into a long discussion about that when him and I were in Hawaii uh, because he, we were in Hawaii and he had a bad shingles outbreak, which sort of limits going to the beach. Yeah. But, but it was all, it was all kind of related to that. So yeah, that is a great explanation. IGM wins the war. So basically your, your innate immunity, the virus comes in, your body reacts to it, cytokines, they send white blood cells, they kill whatever, hopefully they kill whatever it is. And then they take it back to memory cells that say, look, next time this guy invades the house, make sure that we kill it before it causes any damage like it did this time. And that is initially they go, okay, we're going to send out some early troops, IGM, just in case it's out there, just look for this guy. They get a card, they have a picture, and they go out and then they mobilize the IgG, which says you guys are our reserves, that you will remember this picture hopefully for the rest of your life. And if this invader comes back, you go out and handle it. Yeah. And you know, now that now that we understand that, I think we can we can jump into some of these articles. And I think I, I yeah, was sorry. thinking before we get into the deep aspects of these these other articles, I I was very impressed with when I threw out the macaw study at you, and you're like, "Yeah, did you really read it?" I'm like, "I read the abstract." This is a great example of what I did scientifically poorly which was I read the abstract and I've been quoting this article. And then you're like, yeah, read the whole article. So in the abstract, and not to sabotage where you're going, but I just want to do this, that this is why we need to dive deep into the journals. Because in the abstract, um, they describe, recently has been reported that discharge patients in China and elsewhere were testing positive after recovering. However, it remains unclear whether the convalescing patients have a risk of relapse or reinfection. So what they did is they gave COVID-19 to macaw monkeys. They don't say how many. They don't discuss anything. What they say is after the symptoms were alleviated and the specific antibody tested positively, the, positively, the half of the infected monkeys were rechallenged. Half of the infected, notably neither viral loads in nasopharyngeal and anal swabs, a long timeline, nor viral replication in all primary tissue at five days post-infection was found in re-exposed monkeys. Right. And then you said to me yesterday, why don't you read the rest of the article? Right. Because so- if you, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll get into this in a little more detail in, in a couple minutes, but, you know, sort of a spoiler, this is the study. This is the study that's being quoted as the basis for immunity testing and talking about giving out people immunity cards because it, it's, this, it's this solid proof that immunity exists and you can't get reinfected. And, and if you read the abstract and you listen to all the pundits, you would think they, they herded every monkey they had in China and created a cohort of thousands. <laughs> in reality, when you read the study, they had four monkeys. <laughs> so and they reinfected they had, half. They reinfected two. <laughs> <laughs> so I, not to say that the data is not valid, 
but you know you have to have it with a grain of salt uh the size of the rock of gibraltar you know yeah <laughs> so after i read it i was like oh man he wasn't kidding and then they reinfected the two and then they sacrificed them and they called them adult macaws so then i went down a rabbit hole typical google rabbit hole as it turns out macaws can live 20 to 30 years the average age of these adults were three to five years so i i I'm, right younger you know theoretically healthier theoretically healthier much younger pre-teens or teen style adults um and i get it that we don't want to sacrifice a whole bunch of macaw monkeys i'd rather not sacrifice any animal or anything and have some sort of other way to test this but this is just a great example of the media using this article me using the article and other you know when eric and i were talking on another episode i was bringing this up i'm so thank you for pointing that out to me because that has to be, you have to look at the articles and that's what we're going to do today is let's, let's dive. So I'm going to throw it in you wherever you want to go with it, run with it and I'll try and keep up. All right. So before we hit that study and we definitely want to talk about that because it's the, it's the basis for the whole argument. There's um, there was a, a, a study or, or a data set really published by the Chinese CDC about the Wuhan experience. And I think it's good just to, just to hear the numbers. So basically it, they had- Is it this one? Correct. The, okay, great, mm -hmm. yeah. So this is the viewpoint characteristic of and important lessons from the coronavirus 2019 outbreak in China is the title of the Yeah, article. and these, and these numbers are, are current as of February, which is at the end of the curve in Wuhan. So they, they are completely valid numbers um, you know, that they published. So they had 72,314 cases of COVID-19 and, you know, 62% of those were confirmed with some sort of testing. You know, a lot of those numbers came from people who just had the right clinical syndrome because, you know, much like us, they didn't have enough testing to go around. They weren't able to get all the testing at the same time. So, you know, some of those numbers are the people who were admitted and treated and may have been on ventilators, but didn't have a confirmed diagnosis but it seemed pretty likely that, that, that they were sick with COVID-19. And 3% of them were in advanced age of over 87, uh, and 87% though fell into that uh, 30 to 79 age range with only 8% of the confirmed cases being uh, younger than 30. So, you know, most people fell into that uh, fat part of the age distribution uh, with a very small percentage of them being on, on opposite ends of the young or old spectrum. Of the disease, and this is where it gets really important, 81% of the cases were mild, right? So you might have had some sniffles, you might have not felt so great, but you didn't end up, right? We, we get worried, right? We talk about ventilator shortages, we talk about, you know, overrunning the capacity of the hospitals, but the vast majority, four out of five, didn't really have much symptoms, if any. Severe cases, 14%, right? Those are your hospitalized patients and critical, the ones that are ending up on ventilators are 5%. So, you know, if you break down the numbers, it's a very, uh, it's not insignificant, but I think much like is the case in general, we sensationalize the, the worst cases. And we got to be careful about falling into that trap. You know, just for that, I mean, right before we hopped on the call here, I had a friend call me because um, his father is very sick with COVID-19. So it, when we say that 80% of the people don't get sick, if, you're, if you have a personal relationship or it's you, 
that's 100% of the most important thing that's right. going on. And that's what's scary is the high infectivity rate of this. And in this, in this article, the thing that struck out to me was COVID-19 rapidly spread from a single city to the entire country in 30 days. And now we're, we have a worldwide pandemic. So even though it's a small, the majority of people will have mild symptoms, but when you take into the account of the people that do get sick, that's how come we're taking it so seriously. But where you're going is how do we get that 80% back to work? Right. Right. And, and also just having that knowledge that, uh, you know, we'd much prefer you don't get sick, but if you do don't panic. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is, everything in the media right now is really bad. I've been talking to a lot of people. Um, the New York times article, the thing I didn't get into was that the guy actually thought for sure he had COVID because a month before he had the classic symptoms high fever, whole nine yards, tested negative for the flu, and his antibody test was negative. So is it a valid test or not? And there's a lot of people that are like, you know what? I got sick in January. I got sick before we started talking about it here in the U.S. Has it been around? Has it been, uh, basically, did it come to the U.S. sooner? So who knows? We're, we're, right. this is all the, we're all going to sort this out. Right. And the, the case fatality rate in Wuhan was 2.3%. So 2.3% of the confirmed cases, uh, you know, passed away, but 50% of those were critically ill patients. So it, it, it does sort of pass through that the sicker you are, the more serious it is. Yeah. And then that's coming out of China. And we have all this new data showing the people that do do worse and we're starting to, you know, portion everybody out. We know that the Italians have a much higher death rate. And then if you look at their demographic, they're older and all this other stuff, it's, it, we're learning. We're learning that in New Orleans here in the U.S., we're having a higher fatality rate, a higher sicker rate because of multiple different reasons. And you can start to predict where you're going to need more healthcare resources based on, these dem, based on these demographics. Right. I mean, there were, there were two specific issues that came up in New Orleans that may parallel the, the Italian subset in that it was a high density area with, you know, Mardi Gras going on. And, you know, a lot of the case fatalities happened in a nursing home population, you know, pe people at advanced disease living in close quarters. Uh, you know, so this, this, it may not be a, a new paradigm. It may actually be uh, the same paradigm playing out in a specific way. Your audio is out. Oh, sorry. What's your, what's your take? What's your summary of this article then? So my, my summary of this article is that there's a really high number of people who got infected pretty quickly. This is a, a high infectivity uh, virus, but of those, the vast majority of them did not get that sick, thankfully. But of the ones that did get sick, there are a significant number who became critically ill and some who unfortunately even died. So it is serious. We do have to take it seriously and maintain social distancing and do all the things we can to flatten that curve. But if you do get sick, they're, they're for, for most. Uh, you, will, you will see the other side okay. Yeah. So the other articles that you chose to talk about, how does this play into this one? So the second article is 
answering the question of what is the true denominator, right? How many people actually are infected, right? We're, we're talking about these rates of infection, but the problem is in just about every spot in the world, we're choosing to, because of limited resources, we're choosing to test people who are high risk, the patients who come in with significant symptoms, right? It's not just simply that you show up and say, hey, I've been coughing for a few days. I want to get checked for COVID. If you do that, you're going to get turned around and told to go home and self-quarantine, yeah. Yeah. right? The ones who are sick, having trouble breathing, high fevers, those are the ones that are getting tested. So unfortunately, we're creating our own sample error. And yeah. this, is, this is playing out the world over. So the, the natural follow-up question is, what's the true denominator? How many people actually are infected? And they, there's a study uh, called uh, the Estimates of Undetected Rate Among SARS-CoV-2 Infected Using Testing awesome. Data from Iceland. And they chose to look at Iceland in particular because they have a sort of a dual phase program. They have the same exact setup as we all do where they're testing uh, nationally high-risk individuals uh, through their national university hospital system. Uh, but most of the population, again, so they, they do throw in there, there still is a little bit of sampling bias, but most of the population is eligible for voluntary testing from a private company called Decode Genetics. So because they have a much larger sampling size, uh, this became uh, a good spot to try and figure out what that true denominator is. Um, you know, like I said, there, there are some limitations because even though most people uh, did fall into uh, the ability to get or eligibility to get tested uh, through this um, private company, they, they didn't get everybody, um, but they did get some nice demographic data. 44% of the people who went and got voluntarily tested had some mild sort of cold or flu symptoms. So these were not asymptomatic individuals by and far. Uh, many were, uh, but not all. And based on their data, uh, the results of both the national testing and the private testing, 887 to 93.6% of infections are undetected infections. They're the ones that we don't know about. Say that one more time slowly. Yeah. So they, they created a range. They didn't have an exact number, but somewhere between 89 to 94% of all true infections were being undetected. To sort of flip that around the other way, we're only diagnosing about 6% of the true infections. So we're, we're leaving a lot on the table by design. Yeah. And so, and I have to believe these guys. Now, I know that your undergraduate degree was in economics, correct? Uh, yeah, among others. <laughs> among others. Well, I got the biggest kick out of reading this article because looking at the math that they're doing, <laughs> this is basically my insecurity nightmare. I'm like, I'm not walking around. Whenever I'm like really stressed, I don't have nightmares about being naked. I have nightmares about trying to take a calculus test or something. These <laughs> stats are, are, are stunning. I mean, it almost looks like artwork what they're doing. So I have to believe them that they're right because... It's yeah, it, it, it took me a little bit to, to read it and, and make sure that I understood what the numbers meant. Um, and, that, and, and, and as we discussed it the, uh, the first time around when we were talking about this article, I actually overstated what they were trying to say 
because I, I misunderstood some of the numbers. So you know, after reading it two, three, or four times, uh, it, it made a little more sense to me. So well, it, I'm glad it made sense to you because it just I just look at this and it just looks like I'm I'm I feel like I'm on Goodwill hunting with that chalkboard and trying to solve the. Uh, whatever equation it is, these things are, they did a lot of math on this to extrapolate this to a nationwide thing, which means they had the, they had the tests, they showed how many people were being missed, and then they extrapolated it to their census. Right. And just to explain what I mean by numerator and denominator in this situation. So the numerator or the number above the line are the number of people who have COVID infection. The denominator is the population, right? So one point of bias in a study like this that you have to understand whenever you're reading this is you have volunteers, right? People who said, I'm going to go get tested. Yeah. You might have plenty of people who said, I'm fine. I'm yeah. not getting tested. I don't want to know. I'm not so, getting paid. So why should I drive over there? Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'm going to get exposed because I'm hanging yeah. out with all yeah. these people. So the true denominator, the population might be underrepresented. So even though we're saying that 6% of the people are the true and 94% are being undetected, it might actually be a smaller number. But I think what you can take away from this is that we're only seeing a drop in the bucket. The question is, how much is that drop? So we have to figure out how much of the population has already been exposed, is what it comes down to, is what this study is telling us. Right. Yeah. So how do we get to the denominator here? What are some different ways to do it? So probably one way to do it, which hasn't been done yet, but is under discussion is random testing, right? Because if here you're saying the selection bias is in that only certain people are coming to you, well, maybe if you go to them, you'll be able to get a better sense of a smattering or a cross-section of the population. And this has uh, been one of the discussions now in the media about, in the United States in particular, about certain counties getting access to testing and setting up random testing protocols. And some of the discussion has been about mobile command centers, right? Going out to people so that you decrease that selection bias. So if you're gonna do something like that, it has to be a test that is easy, it has to be a test that is sensitive and more important. It's gotta be cheap. Yeah. It's gotta be cheap. It's gotta be cheap. You have to have a certain level of sensitivity and specificity. Can you explain to everybody what sensitivity and specificity is? Sure, so uh, harkening back to my uh, medical school days, uh, I remember this little, uh, this little, uh, memory game that you'd play to try to remember the difference between sensitivity and specificity. And uh, we called it uh, spin and snout. So when you talk about sensitivity, sensitivity is the number or the percentage of ruling out the disease, whereas specificity is ruling in the disease, right? So we want to talk about, in other words, uh, or, or another part of that is, if you have a positive test, do you actually have it? What are the chances that, that that's a true positive and you actually are infected? And on the flip side to that, if you have a negative exam, how confident are you that you don't have it and we didn't miss the fact that you have it? Yeah. If you want an update on this, I went to Peter Adia, MD's website, and he does a whole thing on how to get people back up to speed with this uh, epidemiology and, and stats kind of terms because it is confusing. But bottom line is, if you have a high sensitivity, high specificity, it's a good test. Right. Is what it comes down to. 
Yeah, any screening test you want to have, you want to know that it's picking up the right people and casting away the right people and not telling people incorrectly that they have something and also not letting us lose the ones who truly have it and we don't know. Yeah, so think about this. If we do a test and it says that I am positive for the antibody, meaning that I have IgG, and it is a false positive, then I go around the world thinking I'm, I'm bulletproof and I could be infecting people and then I, I put myself at risk. If we take a test and it is a false negative, then we're putting people and saying, you don't have this yet, go back in your home, keep quarantine, you can't go back to work and all this other stuff. Right. And that's kind of what we're going to get into right now. Right. The risk of it is it's the antithesis of social distancing. Yeah. Yeah. So you pulled up another article where this is the diagnostic value and dynamic variance of serum antibody coronavirus disease. What was your take on this article? So it's an interesting article for sure, but I would caution that when you read it, kind of similar to the monkey article, which we'll discuss next, the numbers are small. And you always have to be careful whenever you're trying to interpret data in a small data set because the smaller it is, the higher the, the risk of bias. Unintentional, but, but bias in the numbers. So it was uh, the first published data that compared the PCR testing uh, versus, uh, well, rather, they, they took a bunch of patients who were all being tested for COVID with PCR and the ones who tested negative and therefore were known to not have COVID, right? We might walk around thinking we don't have COVID, but we don't know whether we do or don't since people could be asymptomatic for so long. Yeah, These are patients who we know don't have COVID and use them as the control group compared to the PCR positive patients who were known to have COVID. And what they did is they then looked at those patients and tested IgM and IgG to know who makes it, how much, and whether or not that can happen in the control group as well. To say it another way, if I'm infected with COVID and I make IgM and IgG, but somehow someone in the non-COVID group does it as well, how valid is that to know that I'm immune? Yeah. Right? The idea is, is that only the people who have been exposed and therefore can protect themselves mm -hmm should generate that immunity or should we should be using that as a marker for the immunity. So a couple interesting things are that some people, and that's an important point, did not make IgG. And on the, on the control side, three people did make IgG. However, a big caveat in that is that they made it at much lower titers. So they had, they, they made some IgG, but less IgG than those people who were exposed to or had active viral replication. So another point I'll make is that this is a, it, it's a very interesting article and it's been discussed a lot. Um, it's a journal pre-proof article. So it does mean that it hasn't been published yet, but the journal has accepted it for publication. It's already been through peer review. So this is, this is still a, a very legitimate uh, publication. So there were in the two, in the two sides, there were, 43 patients with PCR positive confirmed COVID-19 and compared to their control group of 33 patients 
who were these rule out patients, patients who came in, they, they thought they were sick and potentially had COVID, but the PCRs were never positive. And uh, another good point I, I would make is uh, these patients had multiple testing points. Uh, they were tested at, at multiple times. So uh, to, to decrease- Tested at multiple of, times in the same location though, right? Nasal right. pharyngeal swabbing. Right. So, so they're, they're trying to control for that. Well, what if they're, we missed it the first time? Right. Mm -hmm. So then they're going to repeat it again in a few days, which gives you uh, a trend over over time. So but but I agree. Uh, the point being that it was all nasopharyngeal swabs, I think oral too, nasal and oral. Yeah. Um, so limited to one type. So you could still you still have that bias of did you not do it adequately? Um, you would hope it's only and they don't mention this, whether it was or not, that it's only a certain few people who are doing the testing so that you're controlling for variables of maybe some who do it better than others uh, and maybe get better sampling. Uh, so they don't mention that, but because it was all done in one site, you have to assume for the moment that there's only a few people who are doing the testing so they know what they're doing. The sensitivity, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say what I found interesting in this is this Suspected infected patients were discharged from the hospital once the results of two-time molecular tests in 24 hours were negative. So basically, in my interpretation of this, understanding now the limitations of the testing, they may have sent people out that were not PCR positive that could later develop IgG and IgM. So when you get into the sensitivity and specificity of this, it, it, this, is as, this is as good as we can get, but it may change as we gather more data. Right. Right. So the, the sensitivity and specificity for IgM and IgG to diagnose an infection was 48% and 88.9% of sensitivity. So IgM was 48 and IgG was 88.9 and 100% and 90.9% specificity, right? So in other words, if you had IgM, that meant that you had the infection because it's an acute marker that would only happen if you've been acutely infected. But if you didn't have IgM, it did not mean that you weren't infected. Right. Mm -hmm. So just to sort of wrap your head around that, it's really, really good as a marker if you have it, but if you don't have it, it doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence. The I love IgM how we're doing this because the media just glosses over it and just confuses people. My patients are calling me all day long asking all these questions. Yeah, it's, it's important to understand what it is, right? And, and, and the media doesn't kind of give you a primer to explain uh, the background of what they're talking about. They just give you a two-minute soundbite and, and you're sort of left on your own to interpret it. Exactly. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, not a problem at all. So they found that, uh, as you would expect, given that IgM comes first and then IgG follows, IgM titers would rise and then they'd fall because as you get over the acute infection, you no longer need your IgM, but the IgG titers would rise until they were 100% in those people that produced IgG, right? So the ones that were making IgG made them. It was always higher uh, for whatever reason, and this, this is not clearly explained, but the titers of IgG were always higher than the titers of IgM. I think it's just something to sort of keep in the back of your mind just because we don't yet know what titers mean. So it's just uh, getting all the data you can and trying to figure out what it means going forward is important. The IgG positivity rate was over 90 was up to 90% and it didn't really change it one from the time that you were virus positive with PCR 
to your post-infection viral negative state. But the titer of IgG was almost double once you pass the infection, which that starts giving you that glimmer of hope yeah. about immunity, right? Exactly. Because yeah. as you're fighting the infection, it's not as important to remember you need someone who's actively on the front line, and that's where your IgG, IgM helps you. But once you're done, you want to you wanna remember that. You want to be stone cold. You want to know that if you get any kind of exposure again, your body is ready to jump into action. I mean, this is the, just getting back to your analogy, what you have are some special, we've got special ops that have a picture of something. And they say, when this thing shows up, kill it before it does anything. And all they do is wait. That's what the IgG is doing, is waiting for the possibility of seeing that and they just get after it. Right. So just to sort of talk about the, 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 the sort of underside of this, three of the 33 patients in the control group were IgG positive, right? So that, that makes you step back just a little bit in saying that, well, if you got the IgG, you're good, right? But the important thing is that the titers were lower. So they talk about the, the units, the units of positivity for this assay were 10, 10 units per milliliter. And those that were in the control group had uh, no one higher than 15. So they were sort of a low kind of weak positive compared to those in the uh, active group who all had much higher, at least twice the normal uh, titers. So that might be an important piece of information, right? That not only figuring out who is IgG, but how much. Maybe there's a threshold value that confers immunity. 27 of the known COVID patients had IgG testing during the infection. Three of them didn't make any IgM or IgG. So whoever didn't make IgG also didn't make IgM. It's interesting because the way I look at this is probably different than almost everybody who reads this article. I'm sure everyone who looks at it and it's, and it's valid is going to say certain people don't make it. What I look at it is that's kind of an amazing thought. 10% of the people didn't make IgM or IgG and still fought off the virus somehow. Yeah. So there's some sort of mechanism, a secondary mechanism to be able to successfully defeat the virus beyond this, the typical virology that we know about. Well, I, okay, so point counterpoint, what if they're catching this person at a point in time where the IgM is dipped down and the Ig G is coming up. So you're going to have two overlapping. Right. You're in a window, right? You're in a window. So did they check them at the wrong time? Right. That's a great thought. The catch is they did this at least three times separated over several days, going all the way out to 28 days post-infection. So I suppose it's possible, but given what we know about the curves of IgM and IgG, even if you think maybe you were shifted over in time, you should have caught it somewhere. And maybe you don't get one, maybe, maybe you only get one, maybe you don't get both, but you should have seen something. So what you're describing is that people that had an innate immunity, but they did not develop the adaptive immunity. In other words, their body's initial response may have been effective enough, but they did not develop. So those people, the question is, can they be reinfected? Will they have a... Uh, possibility of the virus having a resurgence and come back and hit them again. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the discussion. The discussion is 
do these people have immunity now, right? If you're making the supposition that you need IgG to have immunity and these people can't make IgG, are they subject to reinfection? I would argue it goes even deeper. We're trying to get serum, right? Draw blood from people who have had infection to look at IgG titers to understand how much is needed for immunity, how much is enough. I would want to know about the serum of these people. What makes it different? Is there something, is there a different way that we could be looking at this to confer immunity? Is there something else that maybe can work in concert? Hmm. So here you have the subset of people, which is a significant amount in a small study, 10%. Right. So a subset of people that survived did not produce the antibodies and going forward in some sort of weird society where we have to have immunity passports to go around. Um, Peter Adia was talking about, we should get bracelets for people to show I'm this, I'm that, which is gets a little bit big brotherish and it gets real scary thinking about that. But there could be a subset of people that will not produce antibodies, but their innate immunity prevents them from getting infected. And we can't withhold them from going to work. We can't stop them. That's a fascinating observation. I did not see it that way. I was, I was of everybody else that read this article and just went, eh, 10% didn't produce it. So Yeah, but going back to what you said, I mean, this is, this is why you got to analyze articles and you got to have multiple people looking at it because uh, people can read articles and have the same data and draw completely different conclusions. <laughs> Much like everything else much like life <laughs> let's uh let's jump into the uh sort of article of the day uh yeah. before we start talking about the the pros and cons of these uh, immunity badges or yeah. licenses the uh we we want to talk about the uh the macam monkey study and which the only reason why i threw that out first not to describe it but it just shows why you have to pay attention and read the articles yourself and right. have two different people interpreting it differently. Right. So it's a very small study. It is pre-publication and it has not been peer reviewed. So it is being touted as kind of the be all and end all for the discussion about immunity, but it is a uh, very much in the, uh, pubescent stages of research. It's fascinating because I heard Dr. Fauci on a, a, a CNN news thing. We believe that because of a macaw monkey study, and then I heard Dr. Hotez go on Joe Rogan. He said, we're, we're, we're sure that we can develop immunity because there was a macaw monkey study. And everybody just keeps saying the macaw monkey study, the macaw monkey study. And I don't think there's another one out there. I tried to look. I didn't find one. This is the one that I found. Yeah, no, I did the same. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's fascinating, but it has to be taken with a, a big grain of salt. So let's, uh, let's jump into it. Yeah. Um, the whole reason why they did this study was prompted by reports of patients who had been discharged and considered cleared from virus. And then they were coming back with a reinfection or raising that question of, is this a relapse or a reinfection? You know, the difference being relapse that you have the same infection you did and you just got sick again versus reinfection that you actually got sick a second time. And it implies that there's no immunity. Big difference. So they followed four rhesus monkeys and they infected all four of them. They actually gave them inoculations of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. 
And they developed a lot of those typical symptoms that we're seeing in people around the world. Once they, uh, the symptoms were alleviated and the viral replication, as judged by, as you said, respiratory and anal swabs and PCR, had all subsided, all appropriate antibodies, so IgM and IgG, and there's actually a whole bunch of other ones we didn't even touch on, um, they were all there, right? So they, they sort of validated the, the, the subset of the four monkeys by saying these all created everything appropriately and therefore we can look at them for some information. They euthanized one of the monkeys from the start and they basically took various organs and tested the organ tissue uh, to see if they would uh, be PCR positive and they found evidence of viral replication all over the body. Nose, pharynx, lung, gut, spinal cord, heart, skeletal muscle and bladder all displayed PCR positive COVID at the time of infection. Two of the monkeys, so now you're down to three monkeys, two of the monkeys were then re-challenged where they inoculated them a second time with SARS-CoV-2. So again, this is talking about reinfection, not reactivation. All the monkeys, so all three monkeys, were then tested for viral load, and none of them were found to be PCR positive. So the one monkey who was left as a control and the two monkeys who were re-inoculated, none of them had PCR-positive disease at this point. They then took one of those reinfected monkeys, euthanized that monkey as well, did the same kind of testing, looking at all those different organs and trying to see if they were PCR-positive and found that they were negative in the tissue. In all of the tissue, and that's pretty shocking how disseminated that virus was in the first one. So that's impressive. Yeah. So... Very interesting data, very interesting information, throws out a lot of very uh, positive possibilities here now for infection and the ability to fight off reoccurrence, but got to be very skeptical, right? I mean, four monkeys, you know, they all displayed antibodies and from the last study we looked at, we know that that's not true, right? If you have those 43 patients, you know, sort of looking at them and say, if I only took four of them and looked at those four people and they all made antibodies, I draw a conclusion from the study. Well, I guess everyone makes antibodies, but we know that's not true. Yeah, that is, uh, that's a very interesting analysis on a study that's being thrown around in the media like crazy. Nobody's talking about that. And if you read their abstract, I'll say it one more time, like I did, it seems like they had a thousand monkeys. So great job on interpreting that and getting into the details and, um, you know, having the time during Passover and stuff to go into detail like that. Because yeah, I mean, I just got a cup of coffee, got, got some matzah and just sat down <laughs> and went through all these studies. Well, you're better than me because it's, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. I, I try to sort through which ones I'm going to take a deep dive in. And I, I like doing this with you. I like doing these 0.5 episodes where we do do deep dives and, and you challenge me to look at some of these studies. So I had a long interview yesterday with um, Matt Atwood, who's the CEO of a company that has access to rapid point of care IgG IgM testing, where they actually have the ability to take a finger prick like a glucose stick and then you 
can see if you're IgM positive, IgG positive. And it's interesting because you had also sent me that study and he sent it to me about the Laredo. Was it El Paso or Laredo? Laredo. Yeah, Laredo, Laredo, Texas. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody about what kind of a fiasco that was? Well, the short version is uh, best intentions for sure. Um, the, uh, the city of Laredo ordered, I think, uh, half a million testing kits to try and stimulate their economy, right? They wanted to just go to, out. Just to clarify, it was half a million dollars for 20,000 kits. So oh, the city th- spent you. half a million dollars. Thank you. And they, they basically wanted to go out and test everyone and see if they could figure out who's IgG positive and say that those people could go back to work and sort of get Main Street running again. And it turned out that the kits were not quite up to snuff. And uh, unfortunately, it was a bit of a loss for the city of Laredo. So people are asking, like, well, how is this happening? And I just want to just clarify this a little bit. It's what happened in China is exactly what President Trump is doing here. When they realized that they were behind the curve on this and they needed uh, masks and gloves and testing kits, China went to facilities like toy manufacturers and they went to different manufacturing companies and said, you're going to stop production on that. Here's your parts to make masks. Here's your parts to make test kits. And here's how you're going to do it. Figure it out. So these were not already pre-designed medical locations. They were doing what the government told them to do. And then they made a bunch of these things. They shipped them out. The U.S. bought a bunch And then we realized a lot of these things are not effective. And they shipped them back, discussed possibly suing this. And so then China had to step it up and be like, well, we can't just force you to do this. Well, as it turns out, there's a bunch of that stuff still floating around in the U.S. And there are some companies that are saying, well, I'll just repackage it and sell it. And that's kind of what happened to these guys. So, for instance, our group... um, I got an email from somebody in our group that said we have access to these IgG kits and I looked into it. And as it turns out, I, we contacted the manufactured for company and they're like, yeah, we got a bunch of those kits that are not valid because they're not certified. So a company out of Houston bought us and then they contacted our group and offered to sell it for dirt cheap. And it's, you get what you pay for, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it, Definitely was a great deal. They were super cheap, but (laughs) couldn't really do much with them, unfortunately. Mm -mm. And then from as doctors, imagine if we tested people with an unreliable test and we said, look, the, we all, you and I carry liability all the time, but at least we can say this test was FDA shown to be this, the sensitivity specificity. So there is a 90% five percent chance that the information i'm going to give you is correct you're going to assume and i'm going to assume that there's a slight possibility that it could be wrong if you're positive then what we're going to do is send you for another more distinct test which costs a lot more money it's going to be serum and that's kind of where i think this needs to go you do mass screening like we did with um well quite honestly hiv i remember we did the rapid hiv and then you do the the ELISA test or whatever it was afterwards to try and really determine what's going on. So we have these people that if we can screen them and get the um, IgG, IgM and then do a secondary test and prove that they're, that they have antibody, then now the next discussion is, all right, Dr. Ackerman, we've got IgG people running around with their badge saying, I can work, I can do things. 
what are the limitations of that? Well, I think there's, there's some issues that are, and I, I want to be clear. I, I agree that we need to figure something out and this opens up a world of possibilities, but we're in the infancy because there's a lot of questions that haven't been answered. So first of all, do we know, are there specific titers that confer immunity? Because if there are a simple little blood test that just says yay or nay might not be enough, right? We have to make sure that all the manufacturers are assessing at the same level to call that positive, right? If we know that you need titers of 20, let's say, yeah, and you have a test that calls it positive at 10, yeah, right? You're, you're creating a ton of false positive results. So you got to be really, really careful about that. And, you know, again, we, we haven't answered that question just yet. Is there the possibility of reinfection? So what does immunity mean? Right? We have all this data now coming out of South Korea because they've had over 100 people come back who were discharged from hospitals being told that they had cleared infections and that they're no longer sick. And they've actually come back and have retested positive by PCR. But what does that mean? Does that mean that they've gotten the infection again? Does that mean that maybe they were kicked out too quickly? Yeah. Maybe that their viral loads had dropped or that they just simply had sampling error, right? That they get, when they got tested the day before, maybe they just didn't pick it up in the right spot. Exactly. So the other articles that you talked about bring that up, but it is fascinating because this is just case reports coming out of South Korea and everybody that looks at this, nobody wants to believe that you can get reinfected. Like, like that is like the, the, that is a doomsday prediction. So we're going to say, look, the macaw monkey study, which you've kind of already said, take it with a grain of salt, the size of Gibraltar, and then this, the IgG. So it's, the good news is looking at SARS-CoV from 2003, those people have been looked at years later, a decade later, and they've maintained their immunity. Now, I challenge that there are some possibilities that these tests although they're COVID-19 specific, what if some of these people test positive because they have IgG to SARS-CoV? That was, right. that was an argument that a PhD brought to me because he did, I was, on the, I was on a Zoom call yesterday with a virologist who did the original research on that. And he's like doing this. He's like, well, we're seeing that some people can develop antibodies, which may mistake. That being said, I don't know that these finger pricks, there was an article that just came out today that detection of SARS-CoV-2, um, they found the binding protein to be specific. So the test, you can still do a test specific for SARS-CoV-2. And I'm not sure if these IgG, IgM are, are, can actually determine that. So more studies are going to have to be kind of vetted for this. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, it begs the larger question, what do you do with those false positive results, especially if you don't know that they're falsely positive, right? Again, like you mentioned earlier, patient could be walking around thinking that they're bulletproof and it turns out not only are they not bulletproof, they might now get the infection and pass it along to everyone. Yeah, It, It becomes part of the larger discussion about herd immunity, right? Because if we're getting all these people that now are immune and we're putting those people out in the population, then the people that they're coming across are not as at risk, right? But we, we don't know what that critical number is to create that herd immunity. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to discuss, and clearly you and I can get together 
and try and vet some of the stuff as the literature comes out. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, unfortunately, it's starting my telemedicine time right now. But um, where can people find you, Dr. Ackerman? Uh, the easiest way is to check out my website. Uh, there's a lot of information about my practice there, and I've been trying to update my blog with useful information. And that's at uh, www.stewardackermanmd.com. Yeah, so clearly this is a super smart guy. He watches videos. He actually has a pretty good sense of humor and uh, has some pretty interesting stuff. And his, the videos you're sending me of your kids, which we will not discuss today, was pretty, pretty funny also. So quarantine in the Ackerman house um, should be a some sort of big brother type thing, which is, it's just funny. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. We're, we're thinking of pitching it to the networks in the near future. <laughs> All right, buddy. I appreciate you taking the time. So go to uh Stuart Ackerman, MD.com. You can reach me at, uh, on Instagram at kbmdhealth.com and kbmdhealth.com for the website. We are currently, Oh, good news. We now have broccolite on our website. So broccolite, atrantil and CBD. Uh, we're having some pretty good results with that. We can get into that later, but today was much more of an academic discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Ackerman, for joining. Now I got to get to the real job. Thanks, Ken. Have a great right, day. Buddy. Have a great day.